and welcome back to Cast the Pot Tier Witcher, uh, the internet's preeminent Witcher podcast, if we do see so ourselves. I'm your co-host, Dov. I'm your co-host, Aaron. And I'm your co-host, Mags. Today we're discussing the second short story of the Last Wish anthology of Witcher short stories, A Grain of Truth. Also known as Bizarro Beauty and the Beast. Yes, so much like the Striga story is Bizarro Sleeping Beauty. And also, admittedly, a bit of Voice of Reason that precedes it in this short in this, oh, yes. in this short story anthology. Uh, one thing we should probably say just before we get into it is that while most of the short stories we're going to be discussing have already been covered in the show, which um, tries to cover all of The Last Wish and Sword of Destiny, um, there are some stories that weren't covered in the show. And uh, this is one of them. And unlike some of them that may or may not get included, we have had it confirmed that um, a character that is in this story has been cast for season two. Um, so Christopher Hivsju, who is um, Tormund Giantsbane from Game of Thrones, is going to be playing Nivellen, who is sort of the, the, the primary sort of character of this story. So if you really want to keep yourself so spoiler free for the show, you might need to skip this one. Um, because this will be in season two. I suspect it'll be when they're doing the Trial of the Grasses episode. I suspect so too. Uh, purely because it references, we'll, we'll get to it eventually, but it does reference the Trial of the Grasses and it is a theme of transformation and all that sort of thing. But um, yes. So um, yes, in the voice of reason, Geralt wakes up next to Yala, who he was, uh, who turns out to be the girl he was with in the last um, installment of the Voice of Reason, and she's sort of chased out of the room by Nenica, the um, sort of high priestess of the Temple of Melitelli. Mel- is that how we're pronouncing it? The uh, audiobook Melitelli. Yeah. <laughs> the show pronounces it Melitelli, I think. So if any, if any speakers of common speech uh, <laughs> could, could let us know how to pronounce the name Melitelli. Or Melitelli, <laughs> or Melitelli. Uh, all three are used in the game, so I think all three are canon. Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I th- the show says Melitela, so I'll try to stick with that. I think, wait, no, the show says Melitelli, it's the audiobooks that says Melitela. So, the Temple of Melitelli. Geralt is being tended to by Nenica for his wound that he uh, received at the hands of the Striga in the last story. Do you guys think, that I have not figured out if they're taking a dig at Nenica and the temple or not because he says you know when he arrived his wound was almost healed it's just neck was just a bit stiff but she'd insisted on like ripping out the stitches and redoing it and packing it with medicines and now he's sick and sore but he knows better than to question her <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's the nature of inf- infections sometimes is that they don't turn up sometimes they turn up afterwards um, also you know, you I mean like, this, this, is, this is a this is a supernatural monster's bite I suppose you know on the body of a quite mutated human. Yes, that's Who's true. Who even knows anymore, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so she... She basically mothers so, him. She, like, told, yes. tells him to, like, you know, like, that he needs to take his job a lot more seriously because he's, like, allowed himself Getting to just slow get... slow and... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's allowed himself to get, like, basically, you know, like, quite nastily cut up yeah, and this is sort of the role Triss ends up taking in the show, but uh, it belongs to Nenica in the books, who's quite an important character as she uh, develops. I'm really hoping she'll be cast eventually. Uh, she has to. Like, she she plays yeah. a, an important enough role in this in the story that like, it would be severely you know difficult to believe that we won't see Nenica. Yeah, for sure. So after sort of being um, sort of uh, handpacked a little by Nenica, he goes for a walk in the temple sort of gardens and he has sort of a reflection on the nature of the 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 sort of cult of uh Malatelli, which is our first mention of dandelion in the entire series yeah and misspelled in the in the books as well which is yes funny. misspelled in the books as dandelion <laughs> dandelion <laughs> <laughs> yes this is our first mention of dandelion who is a uh, has a reputation as a specialist in every field and has his own theories about women's religion and 
<laughs> yes, I, I somehow feel that the reputation of Dan Dandelion as a specialist in his in every field is self-created. Um, and highly sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. I really love this bit, though, because there's so much world building packed into this, like, this, like what, like four pages of this sort of interval. Um, the bit where he goes for this walk in the in the temple gardens, he talks about seeing, you know, umpteen priestesses, many of whom were, you know, barely more than children, and that he visits the temple once or twice a year and rarely sees anyone he recognizes because the girls leave to become oracles and midwives and healers in specializing women in children's diseases, druids, teachers, governesses. We get this idea of what, like, the career paths for women are in this world, which I think is really cool. That's not something a lot of attention often gets paid to in fantasy world building. Yeah, women are often treated as collateral in the affairs of kings, I guess. Yeah, or just, like, sidelined as being, like, love interests and housewives and princesses. But we get this whole range of careers that are open to all of these girls, which I think is just really neat. Like, and I think I said this to you, Aaron, before as well. Like, I think it, like, reflects the fact that, like, uh, Sapkowski himself is by trade an economist. Like, so he, like, actually seems, like, a little bit curious about, like, what people, like, ordinary people would actually do in his world in terms of yeah. jobs, you know? Especially like, since the field of economics is, <laughs> doesn't value the labour of women at all in terms of how the economy <laughs> works. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, dear. Um, that's some, so that's that for... some spicy discourse for you guys there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, who, who is listening to this podcast for anything but spicy feminist takes? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. But, for, as I say, fair play to Sapkowski. He's given some thought on this subject, which is quite nice. Yeah, for sure. So, well, Geralt's out for his walk. He runs into Nenica, basically admits he was out trying to find Yala for another role in the hay. Um, but <laughs> yes. Nenica tells him to leave her alone right now because he wants her to prepare to do this this trance that she wants to do to sort of figure out what is going on with him because she sees a, a vortex of power surrounding him and... Uh, Yala has a, a gift as a seer. Um, and this is where we find out that this, we get another little bit of world building that Nanika has known Geralt since he was, you know, she says, like, up to my waist. Um, so we get maybe this impression that Witcher kids are sent to temple schools to learn to read because, you know, he would have already been with the Witchers by then. Yeah, like, there is there there does seem to be, like, later on in the, in the series, one character mentions, like, one character who is noted to know suspiciously much about Geralt, um, mentions that, 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 um, he wonders if, like, he, Geralt learned his rhetorical abilities in, uh, the temple school in the Lander where, where kids are taught to, like, um, read and write, and there, there seem to be hints dropped here and there that there is some sort of good relationship between the school of the wolf and the temple in the Lander. Yes. And Geralt's resistant to this idea that there's any kind of vortex of power or fate or anything around him. Uh, he doesn't, we get quite a lot from him that he doesn't believe in, he doesn't believe in gods, he doesn't believe in metaphysics, he doesn't believe in, in anything outside of the real world. And if she wants to know what's going on with him, she'll, he'll sit and have a drink and tell her, but that, that's all there is. And when she tells him that a, a trance will do no harm, uh, I really, I love this bit where, um, he says, well, don't you think that my lack of faith makes it pointless? And she says, no, because that would be the first proof I've ever heard that a lack of faith has any kind of power at all. I just, I love that line. Mm. <laughs> but that is the the end of uh, the voice of reason, is Nenica's trying to figure out what's going on with Geralt and what he's gotten himself sort of enmeshed in. And uh, he's just yeah. stubbornly refusing. As is his want. And, <laughs> as is his want, yes. <laughs> Geralt, stubborn? Why, I never... Has never happened before. <laughs> so yeah, we're uh, not in a pub. He's in the wilds, wandering about, and he finds two, two corpses, one of a man, one of a woman. The woman has distinctive features, more specifically a blue rose that's slightly mm-hmm. wilted, and they've both been bitten and gnawed on by carrion. And yes, Geralt starts doing some detective work as uh, I think 
Dov often says that Geralt is the world's greatest detective. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he figures there's work to be had. He's got to get uh, oats for Roach somehow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What I think is interesting, um, just in terms of just like world building stuff here, is as he's sort of investigating uh, what's gone on with the dead man and the dead woman and the woman who's had her neck bitten, we get that um, Roach is starting to get very nervous as he's trying to figure out what's going on, whether there's been, uh, we get, Oh, we got a list of sort of the kind of monsters that are, that are around in the world. So he's trying to figure out, it's not a werewolf. It's not a Lushy. It's not a Kikimora. It's not a Viper. So we get sort of a list of, of the possible monsters it could have been. And then Roach starts getting very nervous and we get, I think the first use of Axie in the books. I think so. Um, Maybe like maybe partly of him using Axie was when he was projecting fear onto the Struga, but it's never overtly said. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, it's, it's very it's very abstract and kind of, you know, what's the word? Uh, like 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 he, it's depicted more like some weird psionic superpower, in the Struga. Yes, so, exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think so. Yeah, except this book calls it Axia at this point, so we're still. Uh. Either having translation problems or, or working things out. I think that's translation problems. Uh, it's like, I, I the translation yeah, is so shonky. I mean, admittedly, <laughs> it's like impossible for me to tell from the Lufadian translation because uh, they the changed the like. There, there's grammatical things that make it difficult to tell. But no, actually, it says it says the axi sign without even changing the spelling. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I think it is just like the English translation being weird. Uh, they sure made some choices. <laughs> they sure did. Ah, you can forgive it, given it's so early. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's essentially, it's like, it's as if the thing with The Witcher at this stage is it's like he was trying to write Lord of the Rings and getting it published one chapter at a time. <laughs> <laughs> like a similar yeah. amount of world building, but doing it iteratively, and you can't go yeah. back and retcon that efficiently. Yes. He does a little bit of retcon, but not much. Um, mm-hmm. Until he decides to try to write interquals, and then it's just a mess. But yeah, yeah let's, we do let's not, not talk about Season of Storms. Let's not talk about that. Yeah. Um, we do not currently talk about Season of Storms. So, um, yeah. uh, so Roach is quite nervous, and um, he calms her down with Axie. Um, and then he sees, um, he feels like he's being watched and sees, um, a girl, um, in a white dress, uh, with black hair sort of watching him, but she sort of turns and runs away. He says hi to her. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but yeah, he she, says greetings she just... and she just sort of... Yeah. Please. And so, yeah, he, um, he goes off after some detective work to find this, what's poor misfortune has forced itself on these on the armorer and the maiden and he finds a big house that's got yes. a big wall around it on three sides and the outside looks pretty tatty it's you know covered in damp and ivy and it's tattered and there's um the one of the main motifs of the story are a fountain with a dolphin statue in the middle of it made of stone um and then he's charged by Nivellan. Yes, so he sees the blue rose bush, which the the woman who'd been killed had a blue rose, and as he approaches it, uh, a what appears to be a monster charges at him, but Geralt, being Geralt, just sort of draws his sword and stands there being very chill. Um, <laughs> um, so Nivellen, well, who we'll soon learn is Nivellen, uh, the monster, sort of tries to yell at Geralt to flee, that he'll devour him and tear him into pieces, but um, obviously this is not going to cause any stress for our favourite witcher. He just sort of describes moving around with his sword and they have a face-off, and mm-hmm. there's a pretty cool tete-a-tete where he's, you know, he's just saying, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I'm lost. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> And it's sort of because he's quite impressed by the fact Geralt isn't scared of him. 
so he just sort of yeah, invites him just in for want tea. To, want to initially just frighten him away, but then just invites him over for tea. <laughs> like, he just sort of gives going, him, he's just in like, fact, ah, In fact, he goes at one point, listen, like, you seriously aren't afraid of me? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, should I be? <laughs> he's uh, like, ah, oh, what's the harm of it? Come on in. <laughs> It's also partly because he realizes that you know Geralt has a sword and he's very good at using it, and he could probably have held his own pretty efficiently if it did come to blows. So he's, I suppose, curiosity takes over at that stage. So Geralt follows him into the house, and we find out that in addition to uh, Novellan being sort of a monster, he is able to control the house magically. He can ask for light, and lights come up. He can he can ask for food and food appears so it is a bit beauty and the beast in that way too like a magical enchanted house that sort of just provides uh, i re- i really i really hope that like i really hope when they that when they make a tv series episode of this uh someone takes clips from it and just sets it to the soundtrack of beauty of the beast, beauty <laughs> of the beast. oh yes the full be our guest song yes yes, <laughs> yes. that would be ideal <sighs> Yeah. Um, oh, does that mean Geralt's Gaston? Because Gaston's a bad himbo, not a good himbo. <laughs> <laughs> start, well, their names are kind of similar. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so um, as they're sitting down to a, a magically conjured uh, feast, um, they sort of have a little discussion about uh, what has happened to Novellin or and how he became sort of the monster that he is because clearly he's you know he lives in this house and there's there's portraits of his family and he's talking about his grandfather so clearly he wasn't always a monster which Geralt points out quite quickly and he's also clearly from wealth because there's weapons lying around and portraits and he has, yeah, he, he's of means, so he's clearly from some lineage. Yes. Um, so he became this monster and developed these magical powers 12 years previously, and as he starts explaining his story, he notices that Geralt isn't human because he points out a portrait of his grandfather away in the dark on the other side of the room, and Geralt's able to see it. Now, again, we've got some interesting sort of, like, things that still haven't quite snapped into place about what witchers are, because Geralt, in this version can see in the dark without a potion or without an elixir. Yes, but, indeed. But Nivellen didn't clock that he wasn't human until he was able to see something across the room, so that means he can't have the cat slit eyes yet. I mm. think it's really interesting. Like, that was one that I really loved about this story and kind of flagged to me that it was an interesting and well-thought-through canon was that mm-hmm. tiny little interchange where he figured out that Geralt wasn't human because it's such an mm-hmm. interesting way of doing it you know it's like oh there's three paintings he didn't go and use the candle so he worked mm-hmm. like it's giving it's giving an agency and an, an intelligence to characters in a way that is kind of unique to sapic you know even villains yeah. and stuff like that have an intelligence to them like like i always I always like enjoyed this bit because it is basically like you know like these sorts of tricks in a lot of literature where you you know like sort of see through someone in a kind of casual way like you know and and even in tiny things like this are usually like the the province of like the protagonist because it's done to show how clever the protagonist is at solving a given issue but actually though it's well not technically the antagonist but like you know not the protag doing it like in this case and i kind of just like it because that you know like it's it's good when writers remember that like their protagonist is not the only intelligent creature in the universe. And yeah. that is something that I think yeah this series is just so good at doing is characters that you only ever meet once and sometimes characters you only ever meet for 5 minutes have a real sense of life and agency to them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, um... It does remind me, like, in the if you go, get to The Witcher 3 playing through it, it's basically, you can see how this character inspires the Bloody Baron as well, for reasons that'll become obvious um, in some sense later on as well. But it's just, you know, a big beast hulk of a man, complexity and intelligence to his character, who's also a bit of a bastard. 
<laughs> because you know of course yeah yeah Navellan yeah we'll find out in a minute did some did some bad stuff um, yeah so when Navellan realizes that Geralt is a witcher uh, we get a little bit of we're now kind of getting into a bit of the the idea of people not actually liking witchers because that wasn't really featured in the first story Geralt got more stick for being being Rivian than for being a witcher yeah um, but now we get uh, Navellan saying, I've heard of witchers. They abduct tiny children whom they feed with magic herbs. The ones who survive become witchers themselves, sorcerers with inhuman powers. They're taught to kill, and all human feelings and reactions are trained out of them. They're turned into monsters in order to kill other monsters. I've heard it said it's high time that someone started hunting witchers, as there are fewer and fewer monsters and more and more witchers. And then just transitions to, do you have some partridge before it's completely cold? <laughs> Which is just like, such amazing comic writing. Like... <laughs> Uh, I love Suffolk's writing, yeah. It's amazing. So, does this place this before the sack of Kaer Morhen, then? This seems like stuff he gleaned from the Monstrum, but before they decided to actually start hunting witchers. I think it would make sense, because this story is told completely out of time. Um, yeah, it, it there's might no well be. hints as to when it happens. He's not injured, so it's not very late in the story. Um mm-hmm. And he still seems, he doesn't seem to have the trauma or anything associated with him from later stories. So yeah, I it, assume... Yeah, he just it, seems it, quite It might well and... be, yeah. Like, there is, there mm-hmm. is something worth saying, by the way, admittedly, that um, the villain almost immediately after asks Geralt, well, why aren't you saying anything? Like, um, how much truth is there in the talk about you? And Geralt just responds with almost none of it. And what's the lie? Like and the Geralt responds with like that that that's like you know the monsters are go- are increasingly going it's going extinct. Um, so like yeah, the that there are of fewer ambiguity- and fewer monsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, it, it is a little bit ambiguous about you know mm-hmm. um, which bits of like the villain's impression are accurate at this point in time. Mm-hmm. I think it's entirely possible that it might have been before the sack of Kerborn because we know that Geralt is hella old and that, like, you know, for him to become a witcher, he had to have become a witcher before the sack. So, mm-hmm. I think it's entirely possible. It's, it's just there are very few actual hints of the placement of this timeline-wise, if you will. Yeah, I think it's just him saying that there's more and more witchers and that people have just started to suggest hunting them as opposed to having actually done it already. Yeah. Um, admittedly, like, um, like, I was just gonna say, like, admittedly, like, it is also the sort of thing where, like, um, if, um, like, knowledge sort of spread, like, very slowly in, like, medieval societies. So I can totally buy that, like, the villain has not heard of the sack of Kaer Morhen. Um, but oh, also yeah, I can he's been talk, kind of like, on I, his own in a hut forever. <laughs> yeah. For 12 years. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's had merchants visiting quite he, a lot. He, ha- he does have quite to. a lot of contact with co- local communities, but also at the same time, like you know, who the fuck knows, like you know what's going on there, like in rural Kedwin. So like, um, <laughs> like, like I, I mean, I, I do think it's probably actually more likely that this is set before the sack, but but mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm gonna look looked up the timeline right now, just out of curiosity, to see if it says anything because like. Sapik yeah. has made some comments about the timeline-wise pl- placement of all these short stories, so... Ah. I think, Megs, you were saying you think this is going to be in the show tied to the Trial of the Grasses episode, because this is clearly referencing the Trial of the Grasses, yeah. with, you know, feeding them, um, you know, abducting children and feeding them um, magic herbs, and those that survive become witchers. Yeah, it might be part of a wider arc of them yeah. explaining the sack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me, because they did say they were going to explore more of Geralt's background in Season 2. Yeah, because we had a huge amount of detail on Yen, but ver- but and a little bit of Geralt, but not very much. Yeah, which, they have to keep the timeline confusing and all over the place somehow, so... But yeah, this is where we get sort of Geralt denying or saying that like almost everything is isn't true. So like, is this the? Did anyone in the previous story mention the like witchers have no emotions thing? Or was this maybe the first time we get that? And then of course Geralt immediately saying it's not true. I'm pretty sure Ostrich might have mentioned it. Yeah, he probably did. Seems like the kind of thing you would say. Yeah, what a dick. <laughs> uh... <laughs> 
So this yeah. is properly weird, guys. Um, I, I, I am feeling. Okay, this is actually really freaking me out. I can't okay. find. I, every single reference to the sack of care Morin in the Witcher Wikia seems to have disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> what? I, when I type in sack of care Morin into, into like the search bar, literally nothing comes up. Like in the care Morin Wikia page. Only, f only mentions that the f that the that the that the castle fell into ruin. Um, the the page the the Wiki page on Monstrum, you know the pamphlet that provoked yeah. the sack of Kermorin does not mention yeah. like anything about the sack of Kermorin other than that in the like in in the note on. It's like the copy of that book in the original Witcher game. It says that also recounts the story of Kermorin's destruction. But that seems to be the only reference to the sack of Kermorin that <laughs> <laughs> exists on the wiki all of a sudden. Huh. Yeah, I can find references on like other websites saying that it was in 1272. But that's like literally like clickbait sites. I copied and pasted it from somewhere, so I've got no that real reference. That also doesn't sound believable because that was too recently. Like yeah. also no, um, that that's not the one. They're think that the, those sites are thinking of the attack on the Kermoran in the original Witcher game. In the games, yeah, not the the actual sack of Kermoran in the. Yeah, that is weird. Guys, does the sack of care did that happen? That is the book's so right? like, Mandela just... effect. We're not in some <laughs> fucking Mandela effect, right? <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure the sack of Kermorin happened. I'm but sure there's that, a like, big hole. It in gets the talked wall. about in Blood of Elves like a lot. Because <sighs> I'm panicking right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it ta I think they get talked about it in Blood of Elves like a lot because like. Yes, right. Like, like we we all remember that. That is a thing. Yes. That is a yeah. thing. That that happened. Yes. Why happened. the fuck is it not mentioned at all in the wiki? It might be because it's more game focused. But like, it has like plenty book lore stuff. I swear there even used to be mentions to it. I think someone deliberately erased them. <laughs> Guys, I think someone is going through the Witcher wiki and erasing references to the Sack of Kermoran. Oh, you heard it here first. There so is a, there is an actual <laughs> anti-witcher extremist in real life. <laughs> Someone read the Monstrum and got like really invested in defending the peasants that uh, sacked Kermor and need to erase evidence of their crimes. Yeah. <laughs> like guys, this is this is freaking me out. <laughs> Sorry, this is just so absurd. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, okay. What the fuck? Briefly, it does mention the notes on the, on the Care Warren wiki page. The Care Warren was home to 23 witchers and 40 students before it was attacked. This was, this is the first mention to the attack on Care Warren in this, in this wiki page. It does mention, so at least in the Monstrum wiki page, um... Yeah, the Monstrum wiki page briefly mentions that there was such an attack, but not the Kermoran wiki page. Frankly, whoever is running the wiki, sort that shit out, because that's a basic fucking historical <laughs> fact. Come on. <laughs> like... Right. Anyway. Back to the story back... hand. Focusing up. <laughs> Sorry, guys. That just, that freaked it me is out. So, it is <laughs> freaky. Speaking of guilds, um... Yeah, so there's Develin realizes that Geralt's wearing his his guild badge. Says, "I didn't like your guild badge from the start, dear guest." And they, there's a, a moment of tension where he's like, "Oh, you hunt monsters," and Geralt's like, "But you're not a monster." And again, this is hinting at the sort of underlying code of witchers of trying to lift curses if they can before they go around willy nilly, um, killing, <laughs> killing monsters. But there is a good line from the veil and says, Pox, that's something new. So what am I? Cranberry pudding? <laughs> a flock of wild geese flying south on a sad November morning? Maybe I'm the virtue that a miller's buxom daughter lost in spring. Well, Geralt, tell me what I am. Can't you see I'm shaking with curiosity? <laughs>
<sighs> and so yeah, yeah. He's, he's not a monster because you know he can touch silver and because you can touch the medallion yes yeah. um, um so it's established that he's been cursed and then they go on to discuss where exactly this curse came from um yes Ugh. and the story so, is yeah it's rough it. yeah so Carol is kind of like insinuating that like yeah well maybe maybe I can break the curse like basically tell me what what happened so Novellan sort of gives his life story which is uh forgive me if I'm not entirely right here because it's a little bit confusing it seems like they were of wealth and possibly even maybe the local lords just very bad ones and also became bandits, I got the but because they weren't getting basically their... just very rich bandits. Yeah, it's just like when he said like his father complained that like levies weren't being paid on time and that sort of thing. It's like levies because of production money because they're bandits, or was he just like a bad lord that also did some banditry? Uh, like I mean, the thing is. Is there a difference? Like, cause no. like, cause like, you know, um, hereditary like, power is illegitimate. So, like, it's all like, theft. I said that partly as that, but also like seriously though. Like, it does sound like they they like he inherited this land from his dad and grandfather. Yes, mm-hmm. but like, mm-hmm. also like bandit lords were a thing, like people who yes mm-hmm. absolutely inherited some land legitimately but basically just made a pro- turned a profit for themselves off of like literally looting merchants who passed through it that was a thing yeah back in medieval europe yeah like so, I, yeah. so it sounds entirely believable to me that something like this was going on yeah so that's basically what happened here and basically his father died when he was fairly young and he took over being the leader of the crew. Now he is really trying to minimize his role in what happened. He really is. He describes himself as like, oh, it was a real milksop. The 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 lads in the crew just round me around their fingers and, and made me do whatever they wanted. And uh, then one day they went to a temple in Gelibol, Um and there was a priestess in the temple, and he acts kind of like he was compelled into what he did, but basically he rapes her, and. As she is being raped, she curses him and kills herself. Which is, yeah, that's a pretty bad curse <laughs> to be yeah. involved with. Um, yes. It's pretty grim. Yes. So it says that the the curse, he can't remember what she screamed, but it was something about love and blood. Um, and then he woke up a few days later in this monstrous form. And again, he kind of tries to minimize what he did here, that he's just like, oh, I was in a haze and a panic, and he killed a bunch of his own servants and everybody else fled. And then when he sort of snapped out of it, uh, he was in this monstrous form and alone. Yeah. Like, I do feel really uncomfortable about how it feels like the villain is like basically trying to minimize his... Like... Oh, it's like the bloody baron or like Aldeard von Everick. Yeah. Like there's there's a consistent there's a consistent appearance of like arseholes in the Witcher books who are like you know punished for it through magic or curse or whatever, and then basically sort of try to minimize the degree to which they were actually guilty. Yeah, and that's very much what's going on here. Um, and then. He says he lived alone for a long time until a merchant came to take some of the these rare blue roses that his grandfather had, uh, you know, brought from Nazir. Yeah. Um, and he flew into a fury and tries to, to, to chase him off. And then um, he, remembering sort of the, the fairy tales about, about a, a, you know, a kiss from a maiden turning a, a frog into a prince, uh, yells at him, you're, you know, your daughter or your life. Uh, but as it turns out, his daughter's only eight years old, and he feels a bit ridiculous about this. So he gives the merchant a bunch of money and sends him on his way. But this sort of starts a rumor that them for there's a, year. a wealthy monster in the forest <laughs> who's willing to pay for people's daughters. And he portrays and so, it as sort of, in each of the cases, you know, a mutually beneficial. Oh, they got treated like a princess. Yeah. They were taken away from their abusive fathers, and they wanted for yes yeah, so to rent him their daughters. Done a tin bath and. Um, then they went away with a skip in their step, having had a, a rare old time.
Yeah. And um, Fen yeah, and they, as well. Yeah, and they found me attractive and I slept with a bunch of them and yeah. Especially this Primula one. Yike. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And he actually says that like because he feels like he has like confidence or whatever from being a monster that he actually he feels like he used to be a weakling and now he's Mm. strong and has all this success with these girls that he's basically buying um and he almost doesn't want to not be a monster anymore because of this um though we get that becomes somewhat complicated um so he he says you know he kissed and did more than that with plenty of them and it never broke his curse um and yeah there's several of these girls that he sort of goes through this process with and then he kind of says he eventually sort of becomes sort of disenchanted with it and stops taking anyone on for a long time. Sorry, yeah, which we then can deduce isn't entirely a choice of his, given Geralt's just found corpses in the woods, which Geralt kind of leads on to, saying, oh, is this why, you know, people haven't been turning up for a while? Mm-hmm. Yes, and of course Geralt has seen this this dark-haired girl, and he's sort of questioning Novellin about whether or not he's alone. Um, yes, because Novellan sees him looking towards the door and looking nervous and saying, do you, do you think I'm an idiot? Do you not think I've noticed you listening and looking out around you? Yes. Um, and so this sort of comes up that this girl that is with him, his name is, her name is Verena, and Geralt suggests to Novellan that she's probably a Rasalka. Now, you guys are better on the sort of monster lore than I am, so... So... It's not... Rizalkas aren't in the games um, that I know of. There's something similar like a, like a godling, um, but they're little pixies, um, little little children well, um, with no, black eyes, no. like, but they're not really the same. Like, they're, they're, that, that, they're not even anything like that. No, uh, Rizalkas, like are not godlings. Um, Rizalkas are... are um a traditional like they're from like traditional slavic folklore and they're basically just like the best the best way to describe them are basically like they're water nymphs that like live by live by lakes and such uh like if you can imagine a naiad that's basically a rusalka ah okay like they're they're that's kind of interesting they're uh they're like basically your archetypical beautiful but magical woman who lives by lakes kind of thing um right gotcha that's giving sort out of swords. interesting like, given that giving out swords that's later no way to run a country like they, 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 are, they, they, they are basically like fucking lake mermaids um like they um it, it's very ambiguous in actual slavic folklore if they're good or bad because like there's some theorists that like like a lot of a lot of uh, Slavic folklore actually is about you know basically them like being quite malicious towards mankind. They they you know might like drag in like they might basically like you know drag in men who hang out around lakes too much into the water. The, the, like there's a lot of there's a lot of to- a lot of tales where they're basically kind of like malicious ent- malicious spirits that are born out of essentially um, young women who like died unhappy in love for lack of a better word or sometimes were actually violently drowned against their will so like in that regard they they might resemble what like drowners are in a lot of other witcher lore like it is it is also worth noting that by the way like that um there, there there is a lot of ambiguity actually in the folklore about like how actually malevolent these spirits are and even if they're always born out of like you know essentially young women dying unhappy in love um like because uh, some theorists say that like it's kind of like a sort of 19th 18th century reinterpretation of an earlier sort of spirit in Slavic folklore, which was seen as generally, like, uh, positive and had been inherited from, like, Slavic paganism, like, that would be, you know, like, sometimes helpful to humankind. Basically, there's a lot of ambiguity over whether they're, like, actually good people, 
but the TLDR is that mm. they're lake mermaids. Slash sirens. Slash, slash, slash sirens. Slash naiads. I suppose you also get that in Scots, because you get, like, Selkies and Kelpies. They're, they, they're, aren't... Yeah, they're actually, they're actually, I guess, really similar to Selkies, except for the fact that Selkies explicitly transform into seals. But besides for that, very similar creatures, yes. I suppose, yeah. Yeah, like, I think maybe any sort of people who have a lot of water are going to have some interesting water-based mythology. Like, so, they're, so, yeah. they're like, they're, like, Rasalkas are, like, when Geralt suggests that despite be a Rosalka, that is meant to be taken as a... She's probably harmless. She's basically probably, you know, essentially... Don't go near a lake, you're fine. Like, like as long as you, as <laughs> long as she doesn't drag you into a lake, you're okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> like... What's interesting is, of course, what Geralt was mad at Yala at the start of the story for not being was a water nymph, because in his... At the start of the first story, he's, like, imagining her as a water nymph as he's waking up at dawn. And then when he wakes up and it's just like a, a freckly girl beside him, he's a bit like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. But yeah, he, Geralt. We, we established that um, your man, Navellan, says, you know, oh, what's it, creatures, animals like me. Um, and that's maybe one of the reasons, you know, the Rasalka likes him because he's an animal or something. Um, and, if, mm-hmm. and at this, Geralt takes his leave um, and marches away, leaving them to it. Until, of course, he has an epiphany with Roach. Um, There's a good line that he says to him, you're becoming a real hysteric Roach. (laughs) 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 This is an ordinary devil's right next to the bus. (laughs) (laughs) And here's actually, like, you know, like, um, a cool reference to Celtic folklore, if anything, because devil's rings are, like, a whole thing in, like, Scottish and Irish folklore, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I believe so. I don't know Scottish yeah, fairies and Irish rings, folklore. Devil's rings. Yeah, yeah, fairies rings. Yeah, yeah, That's the ones. Well, because mm-hmm. they're usually, um, they come up above corpses. Yeah, mm. fair. Yeah. Um, but I, I love that, like, the show does such a good job of, like, showing Geralt's like relationship with Roach and how much like he talks to her and she's like his only companion because he's like (laughs) this is like such a clear example of like what they were clearly drawing on it's like this is like little banter with Roach about how she's becoming a real hysteric and then as soon as he has his epiphany she's like I'm sorry Roach it turns out you've got more brains than me (laughs) (laughs) Uh. yeah yeah (laughs) and then um Roach really is Geralt's best friend honestly (laughs) (laughs) she really is well, because because she can't talk back to him. <laughs> <laughs> Typical man. Um, yeah, so he he storms back to to the house, and then there's the there's the creature on the dolphin statue, um, having a wee sing song, and he sort of determines what she is. She's you know are are you an alp or, or are you a mula? Like, oh nope. It's a, a Bruxa. Yes. It's this point where he figures actually, no, it's not a Rusalka. Well, <laughs> definitely not a Rusalka. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he uh, he figures out what she's trying to do. Um, so he says, "Oh, you're singing, so you've drunk some blood. Uh, you've taken the ultimate measure, which means you haven't managed to enslave his mind. Am I right?" So he works out that she's so something the Valen said to him before he left was that he was concerned with these like dark dreams he was having and that he was worried he's sort of becoming an actual monster. Um, and that Geralt said, well, if you're not like waking up with like muddy feet and, and pine needles in your fur, like you're fine. But like, this is something that's going to happen if you're having these dreams. Now he's realized that actually she's been manipulating his dreams and trying to, to get him to become a monster so they can sort of rule the forest together is, and is, she can be the lady of the manor. It's the fact that like um, she's... Like, this has always, like, been a little bit ambiguous to me, like, in the sense I didn't I didn't fully understand some bits of it, but, like, um, maybe you guys can, like, explain. Um, like, when, when he mentions that she's drank some blood, um, like, and he immediately says, if you've went to the extreme, that means you haven't been able to, you know, enslave his mind. Uh, does that mean that she's drunk the villain's blood? Like yes, I believe in an so. attempt to like turn him into a vampire as well. 
I guess it must be like yeah her drinking yeah. his blood and then him drinking her blood and then that's you know the traditional way of creating them yeah because Novellan when he comes out so Geralt and um Verena have this amazing fight um mm. where we get sort of um the, the the extent of her power she's got this like piercing scream she can transform into a bat she um she is more than a match for him in in many many ways which is pretty incredible given we know what Geralt can do and we get this like psychic screaming in his head that he's gonna he's going to you know uh you will grow weak sorcerer I will kill you I will kill you um and then Novellan stumbles out into the guard into the, the the guard of the mansion where they're fighting and it says he staggers towards the fountain uh with blood stained on the cuff of his tunic so I think that does suggest she's been drinking his blood. I, I'm trying to figure out if, like, this is just the talk about, like, influencing him, or like, actually she's trying to transform him into a vampire as well. Like, because... Because there are no male yeah. Bruxai in the stories, or in the games. Yeah. Um, admittedly, there is, there is... For the games, at least, that can theoretically be explained by the fact that, like, we have only seen one Bruxai in the stories in general, this Bruxai. Um, mm-hmm. so, like, uh, the game's just as- might- might have well just assumed that there are only male Bruxy. Um, like, but... Uh, I, it's just cause, like, I'm, I'm, like, a little bit perplexed what exactly she was trying to do to Novellan. Like, because- She may just be trying to weaken him to, like, so to make it easier to, like, bring out the sort of, like, beast side I feel of like him. that might have been it. Like, I, I, I'm guessing that's it, because, like... I sort of, like, I don't want to accept the possibility that, like, any Witcher vampires can reproduce by the method of biting someone because of certain well, things yeah. that are later established in the universe. In Witcher 3, it is established that, like, monsters and cursed beasts can make people do things and can control things. Like, the Heim um, yeah. can control what's-his-face Udalric. Yeah, well, it's definitely it's definitely established that they can that they can control people's minds. I'm more just like uh, trying to figure out if this is just a she's trying to basically yeah. drive him insane, or I think she's just trying to weaken him so that he gives into like his bestial nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't seem like she wants to make him a vampire because he's already a kind of monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So when he stumbles out, having realized that she's tried to feed on him and is trying to kill Geralt, um, you know, she almost manages to get Geralt, but um, Novellan tries to tries to grab her and, and fails, and then um, basically picks up a, a long pole, which is effectively a wooden stake, and stakes her in the heart, basically, as one does with vampires. Mm-hmm. Um it says she doesn't shout she only sighed and for a moment this is like quite a sad moment and the way it's describes the brooks like a white butterfly on a pin hung on the other end of the stake clutching it with both hands and it's like the vampire exhaled excruciatingly and like for, for a moment it's like this like very sad beautiful image and then she does the horror movie thing of grabbing the pole and pulling herself forward on it and forcing it back out through her back to get closer to Novellan, which is just like such a visceral description. Yeah, yeah, it, like it describes the red stain blooming on her and her pulling. Her. It's just in- wow, that's yeah. writing. The- <laughs> that is yeah. gets me every time. Um, and you know, Novellan's screaming and stepping back and trying to retreat away from her. She's pulling herself closer. Like you can't help but but see it in your mind. Um, the way it's described, um, and the way it describes is like, you know, the way she moves her hand slowly, like a caress while we're in this like scene of just absolute horror. Um, and as she's coming closer to him, Geralt can hear her sort of psychic speech saying, mine or nobody's, I love you, love you. Um, and she makes one last attempt to sort of bite at Novellan's throat, um, whereupon Geralt unceremoniously beheads her right in front of Novellan's face and uh, the streaming red black hair floated in the air floated, floated, floated the head fell Um, into the gravel 
Oh, this right. next bit, though. This is where we get the start of Geralt's trauma. There are fewer and fewer monsters, and I? What am I? Who's shouting? The birds? The woman in the sheepskin jacket and the blue dress? The roses from Nazir? How quiet? How empty? What emptiness within me? This is, like, the, I think the first time we get, like, something getting in Geralt's head. And, yeah. Which is also what makes me think this is quite early in the chronology. Well, he hasn't referenced Renfrey, so it's happened before that. Yeah. Because, of course, he's killing a young woman. Um, yeah. Well, uh, looks like, who's probably several centuries old. Um, yes. Just that whole sequence is just incredible. Like, that is writing. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and it comes out of nowhere as well, because he's been, you know, this badass warrior through the whole thing, being very stoic and collected, even as Nivellum was pouncing towards him and threatening to tear out his throat at the dinner mm-hmm. table. He was calm and collected, and then he's beheaded an actual monster, an actual Bruxa who's trying to tear someone's throat out, and he's like, oh shit, what have I done? Um, yeah. Yeah. But, whew. Whew, yeah, it's it's something. And then Nivellum as he kind of comes out of being curled up in a ball is a human and he's not this sort of weak ill poxy human he describes himself as he's young and handsome and well built um and which by the way is is can't understand what's happening is interesting because like it 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 um kind of casts it yeah like yet another like doubt on his self-depiction earlier in his story to Geralt of like having been this for lack of a better word slightly geeky kid who got thrown in with a bad crowd yeah precisely unless his curse magically made him handsome uh, (laughs) he's been telling some stories a side effect of the curse is that when it's lifted you're swole (laughs) (laughs) Jesus yeah yeah um, and Geralt tries to sort of prevent him from looking at, at, at Verena and sort of hustles him out of the, the, the courtyard um, quickly and oh this this closing line again oh this is writing just chills you know Nivellen asks you know how is this possible and this is where we get the title of the story Geralt says there's a grain of truth in every fairy tale said the witcher quietly love and blood they both possess a mighty power wizards and learned Wizards and learned men have been racking their brains over this for years, but they haven't arrived at anything except that. Uh, that what, Geralt? It has to be true love. Oh, Sapic. Fuck's sake, man. <laughs> Sapic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So regardless of her being a Bruxa and wanting to rule the forest with him as a beast and and be the, just a reign of terror and, and have all this source of blood... Somewhere beneath all of that, even as a Brooks says she was capable of truly loving him, and this was the only way she knew how to fulfill that, and he's killed her. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, Sapek. Sapek. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. So this is, I think, for me the story that got me thinking, oh gosh, these books are something else. Because I watched the show first. Um, so I had absolutely zero exposure to this franchise in total before I watched the show. I've never played the games. I hadn't so much as watched a trailer for the games. Uh, never read the books. Um, and so this was the first story I read that hadn't been in the show and um, gave me a chance to really see how Geralt as a character was developed and just um, it taking what should be quite a simple story, a sort of dark version of, uh, of Beauty and the Beast and, and making it about trauma and sacrifice and impossible forbidden love and um, dark magic. And like, it's just, it just, yeah, it just absolutely gripped me. Yeah. I think, yeah, for me, cause I'd obviously, the games and all that um and i'd read the first story so it didn't really like the, the witcher short story didn't really have much impact on me but but this one i think i was saying before 
was the one that flagged up, okay, this is something new and strange and interesting and dark and is incredibly written as well. Um, and this was like, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to read the rest of this book tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it does so many of the things that become hallmarks of the series, like the really, really dry, dark humour and um and the explanation of like you know like the general topic of like exploring familiar tropes for a new for a new perspective like which mm-hmm. he consistently does every fucking second uh, every single short story he writes after this uh some follow the literal let's take an old fairy tale and reinvent it in a new way pattern but like even the ones who don't even the ones that don't uh, but still you know, focus very hard on this kind of like, what if fantasy, but like, different and not and like there's a there's been a lot of like you know, like in like a lot of in a, in a lot of discourse about literature and entertainment like in recent years there's been a lot of like like attempts to, like, identify new and innovative ways to make fantasy, like and mm-hmm. and Game of Thrones is constantly cited as like the classic example of this where you like explore very very dark themes that like fantasy perhaps perhaps not like delved into in the past as much um mm-hmm. like but like and and like Sapik has a bit of that as well and that like he 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 reinterprets uh beauty and the beast in a very very dark way but mm-hmm. also in one that is like a little bit more interesting than just abstractly dark if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's interesting is the darkness in the Witcher franchise doesn't come from a place of cynicism. It comes from like exploring how trauma and pain and the the violence of heroism yeah. affect yeah, yeah. people in a real and emotionally raw way rather than in a cynical and just like yeah violent and dark for the sake of violence and darkness exactly right i think it is like yeah yeah yeah. so i think it is interesting you mentioned george r r martin because beauty and the beast is his favorite fairy tale it's his favorite movie and he wrote a 1980s tv series based on uh beauty and the beast yeah and by the way that that one from what i remember wasn't even that dark No, apparently it was really good. I haven't I've watched not watched it, it either, but I've heard that it's really good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, um, yeah, um, and yeah, it's just interesting, right? Like, cause it's definitely taking a much darker look at these old fairy tales, these old tropes, at like, like this, the these stories that are familiar to all of us, like, and even the fantasy genre as a whole, but also. It is a darker look from like a weirdly humanist and like just like from a perspective that doesn't mm-hmm. make you feel bad about humanity when you read it. Yeah, it's not cynically yeah. dark. It's just like people in strange or horrible circumstances that might be of their own making. Yeah, it might be some sort of you know divine punishment. Yeah, yeah. sins that they've done, but they're still people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the willingness to one of the things that really struck me about this story when I first read it was the willingness to render Geralt very vulnerable Mm -hmm. in this moment. That should be this moment of like, you know, you're a hyper masculine violent heroism where he saves Novellan from having his throat ripped out by beheading an actual monster. That's a moment not of triumph, but of, recognition of the trauma of violence and the emotional numbing of, of of what he has to do and that is just an incredible twist yeah <laughs> pretty much can't really add much more to that it's um and it's kind of yeah in, in both witcher to a lesser extent obviously but this one is definitely starting to establish Geralt as not just a blokey bloke hero mm-hmm. who is riding around you know getting his rocks off and slaying beasts and being the hero <laughs> of the day because he has to have his life saved by one he has to have his ass saved by Nivellen, who is an asshole <laughs> um, <laughs> he almost gets killed by the vampire and then he does slay the vampire 
um, and then feel shit about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's so human as well that we are not glorifying violence whatsoever. It's When it's described in brutal detail, the way that um, Verena sort of impales herself on the... You feel bad for her. Pole, She's in horrible it, pain. Yeah. You feel bad for yeah. her. Yeah, you get this beautiful image of her as a pinned butterfly and then you have the... The, the grotesqueness of the violence that is visited upon her body like, and it's not described in a way that is glorifying it it is there is there is something like oddly yeah. oddly almost human in verena who is an actual monster you know right like um like well when it describes her sighing when rather than when she sighs and when she f- says things like you know in that weird mind voice of hers, like where she reaches towards the villain and says something along the lines of like mine or nobody's, like I love you, I love you, you know, like it's, it's oddly like. There's something oddly humanly relatable, even even in the fact that even you know even despite the fact that she is actually a monster and not even like an ambiguously moral one, but like an actual evil. The thing mm-hmm. that's interesting about that line as well is usually it's a line that's ascribed to a male monster um, talking yes. about a woman. Mm. Yeah. That's <laughs> the abusive know, like, boyfriend line, stuff. right? Mine or no one's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a profoundly yeah. male feeling in literature and all that kind of thing. Um, but it's mm-hmm. a young, who looks like a pretty young girl, by all accounts in description, having that feeling about a human who looks like a beast. It's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's complicated. But yeah, I just love that that if it's a if it's a reinvented a tone... if it's a reinvented you know beauty and the beast then then like the 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 beauty in this story is ironically like both the more monstrous and the more possessive one, even as you know like the beast is an arsehole of even greater scale than like in the original story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all the beast in the original story did was refuse to take in an old lady in the night. Um, this one is a rapist. Yeah, actual monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's what the curse was, right? Be- to be on the outside, what you are on the inside. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I guess maybe actually one of the morals of the story is the kind of the redemption, maybe that you found well see from having this trauma the thing is that's the interesting thing for me because actually i do think that like there's not much redemption in this there's actually like the ultimate punishment like because his his liberation from the curse is actually something even worse than the curse itself it is to the 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 horrifying pain of killing someone you loved yes because yeah he he forced himself on someone and then finally found some tenderness and love in his life and had to destroy it himself. Yeah. 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 Shit. Like, <sighs> honestly, just... that priestess yeah. of Koromachtara has, you know, some long game vengeance plans. Like, yeah. respect. Yeah, well, Geralt did say if you're going to get cursed by anyone, that's probably the worst person to get cursed by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> respect, honestly. Um, like, I... second only. Yeah. Well, Sabrina Glevisig, probably the other one. But. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that does not go um, well. But the other thing is, like, it's such a tone shift from the the Witcher, the first story, um, where there's just like this mindless violence that's just like almost kind of laughed off. Like, you're all just like ISIS three dudes in a bar, and it's just like, oh, you did that to get my attention. <laughs> yeah, <huh?"> like um, <laughs> that was treated as a tiny and kind of irrelevant thing. Yeah. Yeah. And now that like, he's obviously had time to sit with the character and think about who he wants to be, we get this like amazing sort of like that was like casual. Like in the first story, there was like this casual, like glor- almost glorification of casual violence. And then in this story, we actually get this like this necessary violence that is still horrifying. And it is what he has to do is essentially for the good, but it is still at a terrible cost and a terrible thing. So like the, the change in the attitude towards violence from the first story to the second one is. is pretty incredible yeah it's epic he's the boy (laughs) (laughs) oh yes okay yes we have to uh before we finish tonight we have uh, to apologize publicly apology (laughs) to the entire Uh, irish people we have to issue an apology (laughs) 
I have to issue, uh, issue an apology to the entire country of Ireland. Um, I, in, um, God, I think it was episode two, um, when we were talking about, like, I think it was episode two, we were talking about colonialism and stuff. Um, we were talking about cultural appropriation and, like, Western interpretations of Eastern folklore. Uh, I referred to Bram Stoker as being English. And... <laughs> Uh, I have no excuse for this. In fact, uh, I should probably hand back my English book degree for having made that mistake. <laughs> I am very, very, very sorry. Um, and if anyone in Ireland wants to start referring to Margaret Atwood as American now, you Ireland, well listen, listen, as a Lithuanian, I can cede you our claim to Adam Mickiewicz. You can now go to Polish people and tell them that Adam Mickiewicz was Irish, actually. Feel free. <laughs> <laughs> the only possible get-out clause you have is that the Republic of Ireland didn't yet exist in 1847. That is not a very good yeah. get-out clause, considering... I am communicated by the Irish part of my family for that, so... Considering the circumstances <laughs> under which under which Clontarf was under English rule at the time, let's not... <laughs> It doesn't make I'm it saying, better. You can probably guess from my name that kind of Catholic Irish Republican sentiment's pretty strong in my family. So point is, I, Ireland, I real we're trouble. sorry. I tried to defend myself here. Oh my god! <laughs> on on the Google search for it, if you put in Bram Stoker, what the top three questions are: How did Bram Stoker die? What inspired Bram Stoker to write Dracula? The third question: Did Bram Stoker die on the Titanic? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, but apparently he died quite five days after the Titanic. Sunk. Okay, so I can see why people got confused then. Actually, because it seems Did like Bram Stoker died in the, in the sack of Care Morin. <laughs> <laughs> that's the secret. Here we go. Let, that's 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 that the that's brought things full circle. Right, that, uh, Has it all been erased from history to to keep this to keep the <laughs> truth from us? <laughs> right. Uh, gosh. Okay. So with that, Mia culpa issued. Um, I think that's our show for tonight. Thank you for listening, and join us next time when we discuss the third story in the Last Wish: The Lesser Evil, also known as the Renfrey story, which that's going to be pretty heavy. Our music is Medieval Abstraction by Lucas Perny and Milislav Kolar. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us as at the Witcher Cast on both Twitter and Tumblr, or you can email us at castapodtoyourwitcher at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>